thank you to Mark and the rest of you. Um, sweet to start the new year with, with this and to be led together, right? Happy New Year. You know, I have to, this is just my impression of yesterday that I think it was the most disgusting day weather-wise ever recorded in Pennsylvania history. And, you know, I'm coming away from it like, I hope that doesn't bode something for us now that we're getting into 2022. Um, We'll see and we'll, we'll pray for God's goodness and we know that we can rely on it, right? Like, God, build my faith in your goodness that regardless of the weather, for heaven's sake, and uh, even for all of the legitimate, just tough times and trials of 21, that uh, he is with us and we are with him uh, as we get into this new year. So looking forward to it, looking forward to a new year. Hope you are too, yeah. Um, All right, so it was uh, through the month of December that as a church we were looking at names of God, and uh, we were there in Isaiah chapter 9, and it was in verse 6, and we looked at, uh, during the season of Advent, let's see, Wonderful Counselor, and then Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, these names for Jesus Christ as we approached Christmas, and then last Sunday, uh, which was just such a sweet um, delving into, uh, Pastor Dan led us into the identity of Jesus as the Son. And he was trying to concentrate and did a very good job concentrating on that name Son and looking at Jesus as Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David, and so forth but exploring the identity of Jesus and that name, Son, that he is the Son, Jesus Christ. And so now this week what we want to do is look at Psalm chapter 2 and have it try to be something of a complement to last week's sermon, wherein we're going to, from Psalm 2, look at response to the Son. Response to. So last week was identity of the Son. This week, to kind of finish out our series, I guess, response to the Son. And what we're going to find in Psalm 2 is that it's a 12-verse psalm, and it's broken down into four paragraphs, three verses each. And we're going to take a look very quickly at each of those four paragraphs And we're going to see that in the first paragraph, it's going to be the response of the nations to Jesus, the Son. Second paragraph, the response of the Father to Jesus, the Son. Third paragraph, the response of Jesus to his own sonship. Fourth paragraph, the response of the kings of the earth. And then we're going to finally just say probably two sentences about our own response. What does our own response need to be? Jesus Christ. And it's going to say in that last verse, by the way, and this is kind of the, uh, if, if, if you like to kind of get a, kind of an overarching theme or a statement as we get into the sermon for the morning, uh, it would be something like this, and you're gonna catch it from the first three words 
uh, of the final verse of the psalm. You're going to catch it in the three words of the title of the psalm. It says, kiss the sun. It's a pretty intimate expression. Kiss. When was the last time you read the word kiss in the Bible? Kiss. It says, kiss the sun or else. And then the last phrase of the psalm, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed. So what I wanna try to do, you know, one of of these days I'm gonna gonna seriously stumble when I try to do this, but I just feel prompted in my spirit to to have us do this this morning. Um, I'm going to try, not from the ESV, but from the NIV version of the Bible, to uh, share with us from memory this psalm. You can open to your Bible if you would like, and you can follow along to make sure that I don't miss something. At some point, I'm gonna, I'll just tell you. But I feel like it would be a good thing for us this morning to just, even if we want to sit back, close our eyes, and hear the word of God, want to give you this psalm from memory and just have you focus on Christ, the way that God intends us to focus on him from this psalm. So this is Psalm 2 from the NIV, and it goes like this. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice, with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So that's Psalm 2, and let's open up now, if you haven't already, and we're going to be looking at our version that we preach from here at this church. This is the English Standard Version. It's a more literal translation of the Bible, and that's what we happen to favor, 
here, and uh, so I'm looking at Psalm 2, and in the first paragraph, again, the response of the nations to the identity of Jesus Christ, and it says, why do the nations rage? It is a rhetorical question, but it's got a good answer nonetheless. I, I mean, it, you know, it's starting out rhetorically, and it's saying, what, why? Why, even with your combined might, to have you all come together and agree and turn yourself toward me such that you are against me, why? Why would you do that? And why in particular would you do that with this spirit of fury that you're angry at me as you turn to me together? Why would you do that? Well, the answer is this, even though it's a rhetorical question, the answer is this, it's because we hate Jesus. That's why. And there are all kinds of things that we hate about him and we hate you too. And we hate how it is that you have come down upon us and we resent that and we are going to do what we can to try and escape that. And so that's why. That's why we rage, and that's why we plot. So it has so much to do with attitude, but boy, there's a conviction there, and they rally to that. Just keep your finger there in Psalm 2, and I just want to read this um, from Acts chapter 4. So you can go to Acts chapter 4. I just, this is one of two texts that I want us to jump over to and just see quickly here this morning. So this is Acts chapter 4 where Psalm 2 gets quoted, just in case you weren't sure that Jesus is the one being talked about in Psalm 2, this messianic psalm, just in case you weren't sure, this is one of actually quite a few texts uh, in the New Testament where Psalm 2 gets quoted. And listen to this. Starting in verse 25, there's a comma there, so, but we're gonna... We're smart enough, we know what it's about to say. So it says in verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, now this is John, Peter and John, and they're preaching. And they quote, why did the nations, or why did the Gentiles rage? That's us, the Gentiles. Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles. So, so there, there's the Gentile representation and it even includes all the Gentiles. And the peoples of Israel too, so the Jews didn't escape, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. These guys are preaching. So here they are and they're ascribing Psalm 2 to what has happened to Jesus Christ as he has willingly, freely given of himself to be crucified on the cross and we ask ourselves, well, who was it? You know, sometimes we ask this question, well, who killed Jesus? Well, first off, Jesus gave himself willingly. We want to remember that. So no one took him against his will. 
But then the answer, you know, we, we can't dump it on, the, on Jewish people, can we? I mean, right here in God's word, he's saying, no, it was the Gentiles also. It was the Gentiles and the Jews, and in a sense, it was me. It's not so much that I killed him, but that he went to the cross, not just for you, he went to the cross for me in my holiness. And this is something I had predestined from eternity per my plan of redemption. And that's what he's saying right here, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God in his great grace, right? Flip back to Psalm 2. You know, why do the nations rage? Because they hate Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, you know what? They, they hate it. John 15. He's still on the, he's still on the planet. <laughs> he said in John 15, they hated me, and if you follow me, they're going to hate you too. You know, it's, it, it's good. You look at that first verse. I think it's good for us sometimes to remember who we were, that, that, that we were numbered among you know, the nations and the peoples, and that it's only by the grace of God that we're not still numbered among those who rage against him. It's only by the grace of God. Next verse. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Thus, so they're unified. They're u- Sometimes, I, 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 it's like it creeps up on me. Um, I, I hear so much about unity, and even from the Bible, I hear so much about unity that, that I can kind of trick myself to think that, well, unity is always a good thing. People coming together and agreeing. Community. That's a good thing. And I want to say here from this verse and this morning, uh uh-uh. There are times when unity is an absolute sin against a holy God, and this is one of those times. Unity has everything to do with its cause. What is it that's bringing people together? What is it that lends itself to the agreement that they experience? Here, I'm reading... It says the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. In my text, they capitalize that word anointed because it's talking about Jesus Christ. They take counsel together against Jesus. Let's be sure to remember that unity isn't always a good thing but that the unity we have been given in Christ, the kind of unity that Ephesians chapter four talks about, you know, where Paul says to the church in Ephesus, make every effort to keep the unity, to keep the bond of peace. Just remember that when it comes to unity, that's something that Christ has already given to the church. It's not something we have to go out and find of our own accord. It's been given to us. We've got it already. And scripturally, what we're told is to keep it. Not to get it, but to keep it. And in that text, by the way, in Ephesians chapter 4, there's an attitude that comes along with that effort to keep the unity, and it's an attitude of eagerness. Are we eager 
in 2022 to keep the unity that we have been given. And keep reading. Verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Like, this is pretty tough, some pretty harsh language here. Let us burst their bonds. We've had it with God. Why is that? Well, it's because I love, I, love, I love my freedom. I don't want to be bound. I want to be free. But I want freedom on my terms. I want freedom as I define it. I don't want God's kind of freedom. I don't want a Romans 6 kind of freedom that says that I've been freed from the bondage of sin but then have become enslaved joyfully, joyfully enslaved to righteousness and service to my King, Jesus. I'm not interested in that kind of freedom. I just want to be able to call my own shots, do whatever the, you know, whatever the heck I want to do. That's the kind of freedom that I'm interested in. That's the kind of freedom that these folks, these nations, these peoples are interested in. It's a freedom that says, I want me, not him. It's a freedom that says, I want myself, not God. And so this is God's response. It says in verse four now, second paragraph, how does God respond to the Son? He who sits in the heavens laughs. It says that he laughs. I mean, you, you, you've heard this every now and then, something will happen, and either you or I or you know, someone within earshot will say, oh, you know, God's got a sense of humor. God does have a sense of humor. This is what makes him laugh. When the combined might of the nations, I mean, you know, uh, China, Russia, these United States, um, you know, North Korea, Iran, uh, India, Pakistan, um, you know, the the mightiest nations on on the planet come together with one purpose, God finds that funny when they turn against him. But not indefinitely. Like, like at first he laughs, at first he laughs. And then he gets angry. Let, let me say this though about the laughter of God. Um, don't, don't think to yourself that God is somehow sadistic in his laughing. Um, he, he, is, he is not laughing at the kind of um, destruction, ruin, uh, terror that is about to come the way of the peoples and the nations. He's not laughing at that. What he's laughing at is the arrogance on the front end that, see, that, that says you can actually um, do something if, if, so long as you band together. 
that, that you could somehow thwart me if there's enough of you on the other side. That that's what he finds funny. And by the way, that's what we can find encouraging, right? That our God is so horribly intimidated that when everyone gathers against him, he laughs. <laughs> Please be encouraged by that. God isn't scared. God isn't scared by anything we can muster if and when we're all on the same page. He's never threatened. So be encouraged by that. You serve that God. That God loves you. All right. So he doesn't laugh forever. It says in verse five, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. You know, all, all let's say about that verse right now is this, um, that there are times when God gets angry. I mean, he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. In the book of Nahum, pretty obscure, minor prophet, it says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. So sometimes he gets angry. And sometimes even in the New Testament, and sometimes even in our future, or at least the future, not in our future, but the future of the world as things wind down. He says, for instance, in Revelation chapter six, it says that the people of the earth will run into caves to hide themselves, and they will shout out that the caves collapse upon them in order to shield themselves from the wrath of God and from the wrath of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, to shield themselves from Jesus. That's Revelation chapter six. Sometimes God can get angry, Sometimes, and there is a time when God will, will very definitely express his anger. I don't know if you've ever been caving. You know, I've taken men from, from the church uh, a number of times, a number of trips. We've gone into you know, a caving system up in the Adirondack Park, up in uh, upstate New York. And um, we've gotten deep down into Eagle Cave. And uh, you know, we turn off our flashlights. And then you know, as we're all in the dark, you cannot see the hand in front of your face. And then it's like, you know, what would it be like to prefer this mountain to fall down upon us rather than have to face Jesus Christ. And then God speaks in verse six and he says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Jesus is the content of God's absolute final, universal answer. I have taken my king, who is also my son, and I have placed him 
where he will rule forever. We're going to talk now about a little bit about the nature of that rule. But as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You can plot against him or you can bow before him. You can conspire or you can kiss. This is your choice and today, but pray, pray. You make the right decision on that. You can take refuge in him. You cannot take refuge from him. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 7. So this is now third paragraph, and it's helpful, I think, to go ahead and see this as Jesus speaking now in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord, or in other words, his father, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the other text I want us to read. I'm so excited because Pastor Dan got to read it last week and I was looking forward to getting to read it this week. Uh, It's in Hebrews chapter one. So flip over to uh, Hebrews one. I'm gonna just read verses one to five um, because they're just so strong. You know, I've, I've, I've heard before, I've heard this over the years from pastors in particular. I wanna say Trent has said it to me also. He said it to us on a preaching team that, uh, you know, if all you can manage to do is just get up there and read the Word of God, that's good enough. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Listen to this, the Word of God in Hebrews chapter one. Verses one to five. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, and it's talking about Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's some of the strongest language in the Bible when it comes to Jesus Christ. You know, I'm I'm thinking Colossians chapter one is right there, you know, in the supremacy of Christ, but this is right there. Love. (laughs) Love this text. Halfway through verse three, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You better believe it. And in case you don't, verse five, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Direct quote carried over from Psalm two. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Not even an angel was good enough. I'm talking angels. (laughs) 
you know, Revelation 4, you know, the, the four living creatures, and, you know, one was like a lion, and the other was like an ox, and third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle, you know, the cherub, the seraphim, you know, those who are closest to the throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, and, you know, and they never stop saying that. Not even one of them got selected to you go ahead and be the one. For to which of the angels, the author of Hebrews says, no, swipe them all aside, only Jesus. Only Jesus will do. All right, back to Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. You know, there's the identity that Dan talked about last week. You are my son. It occurred to me, you know, I was just thinking through the text. Mark chapter 1, verse 11. It's just one verse on the baptism in that gospel of Jesus Christ. But what's so astonishing about it is, like, unlike the other gospels, um, I think, at least unlike Matthew or Luke, <laughs> But in Mark, he, he, he's addressing Jesus in the first person. He, he, he doesn't say about Jesus, this is my son. He says, you are my son. In Mark 1.11, you are my son whom I love. In you I am well pleased. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that even dads, you know, take that to heart, Right? I mean, you catch that in one simple phrase, from God the Father to God the Son, ownership or identity. You are mine. Second, I love you. And third, I'm pleased and I'm proud of you. Now, I'd ask men all ages from time to time, you know, which would you have rather had from your dad? Love? or pride, like nine times, maybe 10 times out of 10, pride. It's interesting to me. I think we need the love, but we want that, you know, if we want for our dads to be proud of us. The father is communicating to the son, I am proud of you, in you I am well pleased. Anyway, that's just a little bit of an aside there. Um, verse eight, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth, your possession. So the inheritance of Christ, it's all coming back to him. I wonder if that was in his mind when Satan was tempting him in the desert. When Satan offered him all the peoples, all the nations of the earth, and Jesus resisted that temptation, I wonder if in the mind of Christ, part of his ability to resist was that he knew it was all coming back to him eventually anyway. I wonder in Acts chapter one, when he sends the disciples out, you, you know, to, to Judah and Samaria and to the, you know, Israel and to the uttermost parts of the earth, if they're just as he's ascending to the right hand of God, He's already just told them in Acts chapter one, in the same way I'm leaving, you're gonna see me come back. But I wonder if it's in his mind, 
Yeah, you guys now, the very front end, are going about the business of spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all peoples, all nations, because eventually they will be mine. You just wonder. By the way, when it, when, when it comes to nations, I, I want for us to understand that for as glorious as the occasion will be in Revelation chapter seven, when it says that every tongue and tribe and nation, etc., will be gathered at the throne to, um, to worship Jesus Christ. You remember that text in Revelation chapter seven? That what that means is that representatives of the nations will be gathered. It does not mean that all people from every nation or every people group who have ever lived will be there. It means that representatives will be there. That will be a glorious occasion. Amen for as often as we share that chapter. But keep in mind that in this text, in Psalm 2, Jesus is talking about, and that God is talking about his rule over the nations. A Psalm 2 rule. So I'm going to keep reading. Verse 9, it says about that rule, you shall break them. Or, in other words, you shall rule them with a rod of iron. And just in case we want to soften that from, you know, to try to get away from language is a little too tough for us. It does say there in that phrase, in the second part of verse nine, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You know, we're told that we're gonna rule with him. In Revelation chapter two, we're told that we get to rule with Jesus, those of us who are in him. But you look at that verse, and when it says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You know, another verse that came to mind, where else does it speak about a rod? You know, Psalm 23, you remember Psalm 23? You know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They should terrify the nations, Psalm 2, but they can comfort us, Psalm 23, and comfort us. Jesus Christ would never use the rod on the sheep. Just maybe have that lodge itself permanently. Jesus Christ would never use the rod on the sheep. It's talking about iron discipline to govern the nations, but it's not talking about a rod to bring punishment to his sons and daughters. It is not talking about that. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Last paragraph, verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, just catch, catch the grace there. 
God didn't have to give a warning to the nations. He didn't have to give a warning to the leaders of the nations. But he does in love, with grace. Be careful. Be warned. Be wise. There's a lot of intelligence. You're made in my image. So yeah, you're going to be smart, but be wise. The grace, see the grace in verse 10 that God would warn. And then it says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So just a couple thoughts about fear there. Um, because I think that they can be helpful for us. On one hand, we are told uh, in 1 John and also in Romans 8, for those of you who have memorized all of Romans 8 from a few years back, um, we're told that uh, perfect love casts out all fear and that as sons and daughters of God, we have been adopted and that there's no reason to fear God within this uh, child and father relationship. There's no reason, and I want to say amen to that. You know, we could all shout hallelujah to that, right? And so in that sense, fear is no longer, must be no longer our experience. We have nothing to fear inside that relationship with God. We are, we are secure. We're secure. And yet, it says in the New Testament, for instance, that the church is built up in a holy phobia. There was a fear that lent itself to the construction of the church. You find that in Acts chapter nine. Or, um, let's say, uh, you know, we're told to um, conduct ourselves daily with a kind of holy fear of the Lord. And read, you can read about that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, it will say that. And so, you know, what, what to do with, with fear in my relationship with the Lord? I don't have to fear anything that he will do to me He's not going to end his relationship with me. And yet there needs to be kind of an ongoing reverence, doesn't there? In Hebrews chapter 12, we're told um, to um, just to reverence the Lord, to serve him, to regard his Holiness, because it says there, for our God is a consuming fire. It says in verse 28, and that's in Hebrews 12. So, you know, I'm wanting to be careful here in talking about fear. Just as we approach him in worship, let's bring the right kind of awe, reverence. I've heard some Trustworthy speakers even say a kind of dread that when we approach the Lord, we want to be careful. And to have that be 
constituting our worship as well. So, the kings are warned to serve the Lord with fear and to rejoice with trembling. And then last verse, it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. You know, it's true about Jesus that he can get angry also. It's not just the Father, and it's certainly not just the God of the Old Testament. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Well, that was the God of the Old Testament. No, that's a lie from the pit of hell. And Jesus didn't just get angry when he threw the money changers out of the temple. There are plenty of instances, even in the gospel, when it says that he will get angry. But eschatologically, and talking about the end times, it says that Jesus will very definitely get angry. I want to remember in Revelation 19, where it talks about him, you know, that he has this tattoo on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Remember that text? Where it says that he is on a white horse and that he has donned this robe dipped in blood, that he's out there in front of the armies of heaven and that he is going to war and it says he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So we, we wrote a hymn about that. I'm told that uh, there were soldiers who sang that him on those uh, on the boats that landed at, at D-Day at the Normandy invasion. They were singing the battle hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He will tread, Jesus Christ will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. We know that wrath is an attribute of God, and we just read in Hebrews that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. It makes sense. In this verse, this last verse, we want to make sure that we're on the right side of the equation. We want to kiss. We want to take refuge. We don't want to resist. Peter preached one time, and again in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. And, you know, with a kind and gentle spirit as the Lord enables that in and from me, I want to invite those of us who do not yet know Christ as Lord and Savior, who have not yet entered into that relationship with him, I want to invite that. And I want to do that with tenderness. But I also know that there are certain personalities, and we get to points in our life where what gets through better than a soft and tender invitation is to say, hey, you better kiss the sun or else. 
and I say it in love, but this is what's coming your way. I to plead with you. We plead with you. Kiss the son. You cannot take refuge from him. You can only take refuge in him. Let's pray. You know that this is true. Father, you know that this is true about your son. You've written about it to us in your word. We see the response of the nations and the peoples, and we see the response of yours, Father, that you would laugh and then terrify and then install your King Jesus. Father, we see the response of Christ himself. You said to me, Father, that the nations are my inheritance and I will rule them. And Father, we see the response of the kings of the earth who are told to be wise and to receive, to heed the grace that you send their way. We see that. And so, Father, in the last verse, we're told, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And we want to be numbered among those, and we want to be faithful to you to go out and to snatch and to bring as many as we can with us into that refuge. We want to do that, Father, as your Holy Spirit empowers and directs us. And so, Father, make that our future reality to just know the refuge of Jesus Christ, know the intimacy of that kind of spiritual kiss. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.